Hello Sword People, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Jared Wilson, host of the Martial Thoughts podcast, presenter at CombatCon, and a long-time practitioner of Japanese swordsmanship and other martial arts. So, without further ado, Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. I've been desperately waiting to be back on your show here. <laughs> or back to talk with you, I guess. Well, yeah, because we, we, we first met, I should maybe let the listeners know that we first met when you contacted me about uh, coming on to your show, which mm-hmm. and I think that went live in like... January 2021, something like that. Yeah. That, that episode. So, yes, we should definitely put a link to that in the show notes so that people can hear, you know, how this works the other way around. But, um, okay, just to get started, so whereabouts in the world are you? I'm currently living in Nashville, Tennessee, USA. Okay, so you say currently. What, what brings you to Nashville? Uh, it's as far north as I could drag my wife. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Most yeah. of us think of Nashville as some, somewhat, somewhat, quite far south. So, by all means. I'm originally from Wisconsin, which is pretty far right. north. You know, yeah. I'm like almost like honorary Canadian type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, at the time I was living in Florida, is uh, when I went, met my wife. And we didn't want to live in Florida anymore. We had just had our, our son. So, her family lives in Memphis, which is in Tennessee, and right. my family is kind of half split between Florida and Wisconsin, and Tennessee is like right in the middle. Okay. So this is about perfect for where we would choose to live. Oh, excellent. Okay. I, of course, you know, I used to live in Finland for like 15 years, which is way north. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> way, way, way north of Wisconsin, even. Um, so, yeah, so... So to my mind, pretty much anything south of New York is south. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Marvellous. Okay, so um, we're both sort of massive martial arts geeks. um, So I should probably ask you how you got started in martial arts. How did that happen? Um, Well, it's one of those things that's uh, kind of a weird story in that I've always had swords around my house growing up. Okay, how come? Uh, this is the weird part. Um, my mom, uh, for her hobby was a belly dancer. So she would have, uh, uh, swords that she would dance with on and balance on her head and do a sword dance with. So they, they weren't, you know, true swords and that they weren't, you know, meant for fighting with, they were meant for being balanced as you, you know, sit them on your head type of thing. But we always had a couple of swords lying around, um, and from that point, uh, the, the the nerd started taking over. So somewhere in middle school, high school, I started doing D&D, uh, which, of course, always has nice, good swords in it. And then, again, my, my, my wife introduced me to uh, uh, a TV show called Highlander. Oh, which, my God. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, obviously is like, you know, Sword Duel of the Week type of show, which is yeah. awesome. And at that point, I decided I, I really wanted to start to learn how to use the, the you know, the swords I was kind of played around with as a kid. And, and that's kind of where it started from. Okay, so so you actually grew up in a house full of swords because your mom's a belly dancer. That's <laughs> <Yes>. fantastic. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't think I've heard that one before. I had a game of swords. Well, my mum's a belly dancer. Swords were everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, that's a little bit of unusual flavor on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, I mean, but you must have spent some of your childhood um, grabbing those swords and waving them about as if you were oh, Conan. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, again, you know, in hindsight, when I've picked them up as, you know, an adult, I'm going, holy crap, the sword sucks. But, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, at the time, it's like, this is a cool thing in the world, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and to be fair, a, a sword... A sword-like object designed for balancing on a belly dancer's head is not going to... I mean, what, what counts as good for right. that kind of sword is different to what counts if you want to chop the head completely off. Right. I mean, the, the, the balance point is like right in the middle of the blade so it stands on their head nicely. But, you know, right. it's like if you pick it up, you're like, whoa, this is a brick and a half now. <laughs> okay. And so so Highlander... Yes. ...is... As as a so you must be fairly like adult when you when you came across um, yeah I was uh, it was the TV yeah the TV show so it was ninety five ninety six somewhere right around there okay uh, and I yeah. was about eighteen or nineteen at the time okay I must be said that the the original movie is one of the best films ever made. And anyone who hasn't seen it and is listening to this show needs to stop listening to this episode right away and go and watch Highlander instead because it's an essential part of anyone's sword education. I don't think anyone who's seen it and is a sword nerd will, will dispute me on that. Um, I, I was less enamoured of the TV show. It didn't, didn't quite have the same... Like I, I thought the sequel to Highlander, Highlander 2, was just... I, I had... I no, waited they, for that never film made to come movie. out. <laughs> no, exactly. I wait. I waited for that thing to come out. I went to see it when it opened in the cinema with my friend James, and we came out of it going, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> we have a running joke that that movie doesn't exist. That they should make yeah. a sequel to Highlander. <laughs> <laughs> they really should because they haven't yet. <laughs> but but um, so so you you got into source. So they, how do you go from watching Highlander, a TV series, and getting, oh, fencing is cool, to doing Japanese martial arts? Well, um, I, I went to the University of Florida, and at the time, they actually had a, a you know, a one-credit PE class in, in fencing, in classical fencing. Uh, okay. in, uh, sorry, in sport fencing. All right. So I took that class, and in my, I'll put it, immature mind at the time, I decided that, well, if I'm going to learn how to use swords, I'm going to use the best swords ever created by man. So, oh <laughs> so I decided to learn Japanese swordsmanship. Okay. Um, obviously, I, my mind has been changed and melded since then, but I was part of that club of, uh, you know, the katana is the greatest sword ever made. So I had to go try and well, find that. And as a Highlander fan... That's, yeah. that's, an under, that's an understandable sort of misconception. Um, yeah. See, I, I do think um, katanas do have the best PR of any sort. <laughs> that might be. That might. <laughs> I mean, they have the entire Japanese government and and you know, the nation of Japan <laughs> treating them as sacred objects. Yeah. I mean, I, you can't compete with that kind of um, yeah PR. So, okay. So, so you decided to start training in Japanese swordsmanship. How did that go? Um, 
Well, I, I really lucked out um, in that in the, the, the university town that I was in was, you know, without the university, it's probably about 10,000 people. Um, there was a school that was teaching traditional Japanese martial arts uh, in which Kenjutsu was part of that mix. Okay. In the more traditional the, the Japanese martial art there is, the more it's swordsmanship and then the empty-handed stuff is kind of also doing, done at the same time. So the, the, the weapon stuff comes first, and then there's also the, the jujitsu or the, the empty-handed stuff as part of it. As time has gone by, it's kind of... Most Asian martial arts have concentrated more on the, uh, the empty-handed stuff, but the original Japanese martial arts were weapons-based because if you were on a battlefield and you were trying to punch somebody, something went really, really wrong at that point. Very true. <laughs> okay. Okay, so so you showed up to this club that just happened to be in the town where you were studying. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what what was it like? Did it did it meet your your sword hungry expectations? Uh, yeah, honestly. Um, okay, it you know I, I grew up on eighties movies, and there's a bit of a Karate Kid feel to it. It was. Uh, mm-hmm. The building we were in was a converted bowling alley, so it had, like, the original bowling lanes in the wooden floor, and they had just kind of built around it, so you could still see, like, the bowling lane markers <laughs> on the wooden floor, which is always uh, kind of funny. Yeah. Um, you know, and for, like, the first month or two, we just kind of, you know, did overhand strikes with the sword, you know, up and down yeah. the bowling alley. <laughs> so, you know, there was that, you know, there was that, you know, uh, I don't know how to describe the... Uh, the prove your worthiness to the sensei idea of it, where you just do the same thing over and over again just to show that yeah. you really want to be there type of thing? You know, okay, there is there is a certain kind of school or instructor that runs beginner's courses as basically filtering mechanisms to mm-hmm. keep out the unworthy. Yeah. And there are others that treat them as funnels to kind of gather as many people in as possible and train all those who want it to fit through into kind of the main art. So then you have like an expectation with many you know, students coming along that they're going to be judged, right? Mm-hmm. I remember like m- many moons ago, it must have been about 2002, 2003, I had this student called Ilka Hartikainen, who's now quite well known in the historical fencing world. Um, and he came, it was his, like his first sword lessons. And, and after class one day we were doing free training and i introduced him to the pal and i had like i don't know 25 people in the in the room sort of just doing their own training and i was kind of going around um you know helping everyone in turn and so there was ilka cutting at the pal right and i expected him to you know cut at the pal for five minutes or something and then go off and do something else and i forgot about him Right. <laughs> because 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 I was I, I was just like I had loads of other students there and he was a very inexperienced junior student and I'd just given him something interesting to do and then I sort of forgot about him while I was dealing with a bunch of other people and it just I just forgot, right? <laughs> and I thought about forty five minutes later he was still cutting at the pell. <laughs> and I went over to him and said, um, Oh, excellent. Okay, then why don't you go and do something else? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then it, it, tur- it turned out years later, we were sat on a train somewhere, I think, and 
going off to a seminar, I suppose. And that I said, you know, I just forgot about you. He was like, I thought I was being tested. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I just forgot. <laughs> I, I, there's this weird aspect in martial arts in that, I, I, you're right, I think we do want to prove that we're worthy to be there, you know, in the first place. That Sure. I mean, I, I think it's in all martial arts in general, too, is that, we, we want to show that we have the determination to be there, that it's not just this burst of in, of uh, inspiration that kind of brought us there and, you know. Yeah, well, swords are aspirational. Yeah. And martial arts are aspirational. So you, a lot of students do have this sense of, I mean, it's funny, I get this quite a lot when people um, contact me about coming to a seminar or something uh, or even booking a private lesson. And they're like, they're like apologizing for the fact that they haven't done much training yet, that they've only just started or they're just <laughs> the beginning. I'm like, yeah, but everyone's a beginner when they start. And, <laughs> and if, if people don't start, then I'm out of a job. <laughs> so, you know, really, really, it's perfectly all right not to know anything. And the fact that you want to learn swords is sufficient qualification. As long as you're able to behave like a reasonable adult and, you know, have a reasonable you know, moral sense that it's unethical to deliberately injure somebody. As long as you've got those basic qualifications, then fine, you know, <laughs> come and train. And, and if you've got two left feet, no problem. <laughs> that we can work on. I, yeah, it's, it's one of those things I think martial arts movies have kind of uh, spoiled us on, is that, you know, you have to wait outside the door for three days in the rain. Y- yeah, there, there is quite a bit of that. Yeah, so I'm right in thinking you run classes and you teach now. Now I don't. I have in the past. I've um, I lived in Florida and I took uh, swordsmanship down there for uh, 12, 13 years or something. This after I graduated, so I was teaching down there. Once I moved up to Nashville, uh, I kind of had the opportunity to kind of go one of three ways. I could either kind of find another school that was doing the same thing I was doing. I could start my own school or I could find a school that was doing something completely different and try something completely new. Okay. So I've kind of did all three and kind of saw which one stuck. Okay. Um, How does that work? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, started trying to offer up classes, had a couple of people coming over for a little bit. I kind of petered out. Uh, I was taking some classes in an Indonesian martial art for about a year. Uh, and then the instructor, he was about 40 minutes away, and then he moved like another 20 minutes away, and it's was like, uh, that's just far enough. Fun. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up um, <laughs> I ended up joining a, 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 a Japanese sword school up here that was one that I'd known about for a long time. And uh, was honestly, it was one of my kind of inspirations for buying my first sword in the first place was the instructor. Okay. So I, it, it's kind of been a dream to finally join into this school, into the system. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's really serendipitous. Or, or did you choose Nashville because that school was there? No. I, I, um, when I first started doing Japanese swordsmanship, uh, I was in Gainesville, which is, I don't know, about three, four hours south of Atlanta, and they have the Atlanta Blade Show. Mm-hmm. And... I went up there one year, and there was an instructor who was doing uh, uh, Giri, which is the, the mat cutting. Yep. And his name is James Williams, and I saw him maybe the second or third year I had started martial arts. About 
five years, well, about six years ago now, I went over to Back to the Blade show because now I'm living in Nashville, so it's only about two, three hours away from Atlanta. And he was there again. And I'm like, oh, cool. So I'll go I watched his demonstration again. And I started talking to one of the instructors. And he goes, well, you know, if you ever come up to Philadelphia, this is where our school is. I'm like, oh, okay. And uh, I went up to vacation up in Wisconsin. On the way up there, I saw a Facebook post going, hey, James Williams is doing a seminar in Nashville. And I'm like, oh, I'm out of town. And then... <laughs> Then I looked at closer at the post. I'm like, wait a minute, that's his school in Nashville. <laughs> so I'm like, oh crap! I, I've lived here for three years and I didn't realize he had a school there. So <laughs> I very quickly joined up with that one. Awesome. And, and so what what characterizes it? I mean, what I mean, if, if somebody asks me, so what is Fury's art of arms like? I can sort of explain why it's like this and it comes from this period and it comes from, and it has these sorts of weapons and we hit people like this. What is what is your swordsmanship art actually like? Okay, so first of all, caveat, I'm not an instructor, so I can only explain it where I understand it right now. Of course, yeah. Right. So uh, Namiru Aiki Heiho is the name of the system, and it's a principle-based system, which I know is one of those buzzwords that gets thrown around. Mm-hmm. But really what it is is we have about five or six different principles that we can apply to whatever it is that we're doing. Whether it's with a sword, whether it's with uh, empty-handed, whether it's with a firearm, those six principles will be in everything we do. Okay. So it doesn't mean they're they're easy. It just means that you have to apply these six ideas to every single thing that you do. Uh, What are these ideas? Uh, One of the easy ones you can think of is don't contest for space. Okay. So if someone is advancing on you, let them have that space. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Don't fight vectors of force with vectors of force. Okay. So again, if someone how, is pushing... How does that work? <laughs> so if someone is pushing on you, if they're trying to push your blade, right, let them roll around the blade. Okay. So again, everything we do is coming into these six principles. Um, it gets... I don't know how to describe this without actually, you know, it's one of those things is I could show you physically, but over a, a podcast is always going to be difficult, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it seems magical in that if you don't know what it's doing, it just seems to work and it's extremely difficult to get it to work. It's one of those things is <laughs> when I get it to work, I'm still amazed it works, you know, type of thing. Um, Okay, so how how do you how do you well we say when you get it to work you're amazed it works so you've got it to work can you like describe the context in which you're actually getting it to work what does that even mean so um, in, in in Japanese swordsmanship it's a lot of a lot more cutting than thrusting for example right okay so a lot of uh, downward cuts because that's what the the origin of the system is is based on you know uh, as a backup. Uh, a really good way to think of a, a katana in a European terms is mm-hmm. it's a heavy two-handed cavalry saber. Yeah. So that's the best way to think of katanas. Uh, so a lot of downward cuts with this. So as someone is cutting down with you, you raise your blade, intercepting it. And again, I'm, I'm physically demonstrating. If you, <laughs> people can't see. Um, in a... As the interaction of the blade occurs, yeah. I'm directing their cut offline 
without using force. So it's not sliding off. It's not, I'm not pushing their blade off. It's as my whole body turns, I'm getting an inch offline and their cut is moving an inch off target. Okay. So that means now my blade is in the correct position to do a cut. Okay, and you, you train this, what, steel on steel, wood on wood, in set drills, pair drills. I mean, most, most of my listeners will probably never have actually trained a Japanese martial art. Mm-hmm. And what most people probably assume about it is that there's lots and lots of kata and not a lot of sparring. Um, how, but, but, you know, the assumptions are there to be tested and checked on. So what is the training actually like? Well, well, the assumptions are also there for a reason, too, right? (laughs) So there is a lot of kata, Mm -hmm. but the kata isn't necessarily what people think it is. Okay. It isn't, I'm going to do this specific attack, this is your specific defense, and you win. Right. And that's the way it's taught, because that's the way you have to learn the aspect of it. But once you've done it enough, either side can win. Okay. If you if you do a bad defense, then the first person is supposed to go around it and, you know, quote, win. Okay. So there is the kata, and there's a lot of that. And the learning process is done at very, very slow speeds. The body mechanics are learned first. Um, in Japanese martial arts, we have uh, what's called the emote and the ura. So the emote is the outward, the physical aspect of it. Yeah. And then the, you know, kind of the, the, the body mechanics aspect of it. And then this is where the, uh, uh, a lot of the Asian martial arts lose a lot in translation is they have the inner aspect of it. And it's all the little subtleties that are really hard to explain and really hard to learn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good, good martial arts done right should look and feel like magic. It should look like the other person didn't do anything and they just fell down. That's right. Exactly. So that's the. <laughs> uh, that, that's true for every every martial art. I think. It's, right. You know, I, ideally, you don't do anything, and your opponent just falls over. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're aiming for, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's when you have it done to you. It that's the aspect that it's hard to explain. Is it just feels like you fall over, and the other person didn't do anything. Yeah. It. Um, the person that's quote winning the technique. They're not putting any force in, but with the exact right body mechanics, your whole body moving at once, the exact right angles, the other person just falls over. They lose their center of balance. Okay. I assume we're talking about sort of grappling stuff here rather than sword strikes. Sword strikes too. Okay. So as the sword strike comes in, not only is it um, tactically, not only is it actually uh, performing a cut, but it is also unbalancing them and knocking them over. Uh, okay. So it has both aspects. That's why, again, it's a principle base, so you can apply those same principles if you're doing it empty hand, if you're doing it sword, if you're doing it with a staff or a spear or some other aspect. Um, we use the sword to learn the principles. And then okay. once, once you get to the, a, a, a certain aspect of, of proficiency, you should be able to apply those principles no matter what it is that you're doing. Whether it's dealing with a punch, whether it's dealing with a grab, whether it's dealing with a sword strike, those same principles should be able to be employed. Well, here's the thing. Right? I, I've been doing swordsmanship for a pretty long time, and mm-hmm. it's a fairly major part of my life. And it's, it's just the fact that for a really long time now, 
I view all problems in swordsmanship terms. Yes. Right? So, like, let's say a friend is going through a sticky divorce and wants some sort of negotiation help on sorting out. So it's like, that's a swordsmanship problem. <laughs> because you have two people with opposed goals. How do you make sure the person you are advising gets what they want? within the constraints of the situation they're in. How is that not a swordsmanship problem? Right. <laughs> right? And, and the first time I say that, they, they tend to go, what? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's true. And, and even, you know, putting up a shelf, it's because it's all a question of where are the forces going? Mm-hmm. You need to make sure that the forces acting on the shelf are grounded properly in the same way that if you're punching somebody in the face or stabbing them with a sword, you want the forces acting on the weapon to be grounded properly through your body so that you strike properly. It's the same with putting up a shelf. You want to make sure that the forces have a place to go where they're all basically neutralized into the ground. That Okay, so the way that you phrased it right there, that's exactly what um, our, our swordsmanship does, is it doesn't... It, it realigns the angles of force so that they're not going through their feet into the ground. Okay. Where it's going into what we call, we have a, call, a, a thing called a triangulation point. Okay. It's about a half step behind you, a half step in front of you. Oh, yeah, sure. Or a half yeah. step, right? Yeah. Uh, different arts call it different things. So as you do a cut, you're going to, you can see it, you're going to unbalance them so that their balance goes over that triangulation point and they fall. Uh, okay, hang on. Sorry. We talking across purposes but when you are striking the forces coming back down the weapon into your body are going into the ground through your feet you're just not letting your opponent do the same thing no not quite okay (laughs) so my goal is to take the force that i'm using with my blade Mm -hmm. and put it into their triangulation point yeah sure okay that's that's standard whether you're doing an arm bar or a takedown or anything else right the key is not letting them be able to feel that. So it's a sensitivity aspect of it as well. Okay. But what about the forces coming back from them? Because what happens is when, when, when your weapon hits them, mm-hmm. New, Newton, Newton's physics demands that there's an equal and opposite reaction going back into you. What do you do with that force? We, we circle with it. Okay. So we rotate in place, which actually takes the incoming force and puts it back in the towards them. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Okay. It, it makes sense to me because I've done it. <laughs> okay. True. Right. It's, it's, it's one of those things. It's, if you can know what it is, then you already know what it is, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. But, but I'm, I'm guessing the average listener doesn't know what it is. And so basically, we're, once, once you learn to feel where the forces are going, you can play with that. You can right. direct it and play around with it and do cool stuff with it. And it, uh, there, um, the way we practice it, uh, it, we have an interesting phrase is uh, we, we exploit Darwinian gaps. Okay. So if, you know, the classic example in Japanese martial arts, you know, grab my wrist and I'll show you a technique type of thing, right? Yeah. So if you grab someone's wrist, their instinct is to push back against it. Yeah. Right? There's, there's this instinctual grab. They, the person doing the grab is expecting resistance. Yeah. So we don't give resistance. We move around the point of resistance so yeah. that there is nothing for them to resist. Or, or they, they keep 
moving to the point where they overbalance because they're waiting for the resistance to tell them to stop. That yeah, that's another aspect that we can do. That's all the yeah. that's the Aiki. That's an Aikido or you know or Aikiheo. It's a it's a set of strategies that employ that employs these Aiki principles. Okay, it's funny because the way you're describing these principles, mm-hmm. um, obviously you're doing it in English, which is helpful to everyone. I think <laughs> I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the way the way it's framed. It doesn't sound terribly Japanese to to my ear. So is that is so in your system are these principles? This is how it's taught in Japan, just in Japanese, or is it has your instructor taken Japanese a Japanese martial art and sort of modified it for an American setting? We've we're in a constant battle with language, um, uh-huh. both both because it is originally Japanese and there's a lot of there's a lot of ideas that are just understood in the words that they use that we don't have equivalents for. Yep. Um, and then there's also, in order to better instruct, we've, tr- we've worked and kind of parried down and tried to figure out exactly what it is that we're trying to say. Okay. So we, we, have, our <laughs> we have our own set of language within, the, uh, within our martial art that is in English, but it still doesn't mean anything unless you're in the martial art. Yeah, yeah it's jargon. Yeah, it's... Um, we have a phrase that we use called realign from behind. Okay. And it's like, I know what those words mean, but I have no idea what that means unless you learn the martial art of what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we have worked very hard on trying to anglify the, the language of it. But so is, is, it, is it, are we talking about like a classic, classical Japanese martial art or is it, or has it been modified by translocation to America? Uh, yes to both. <laughs> okay. So, so um, our system's history is we originally come from uh, uh, Donna and Jay Sensei, who was an inheritor of a Japanese system called Yanagi-ru. Okay. So he was a traditional koder. A koder was a Japanese martial art that was founded before the Meiji Restoration, so before yeah. Japan became modern, yeah. or modernized itself, however you want to phrase it. Uh, so that's kind of the dividing line between old martial arts traditional martial arts and the new stuff. Yeah. So Yanagi-ru was a, a koru. Traditionally, when someone uh, learned a martial art, they weren't allowed to teach the martial art unless they were the direct inheritor of it. So once they got good enough, they said, I'm going to go train martial art, but I can't train Yanagi-ru, so I'm going to co- create my own branch and call it something else. Yeah, sure. Right? I mean... Yeah, it's, it's a huge franchising problem, basically. Right. So... Uh, James Williams learned Yanagi-ru. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't allowed to call what he was instructing Yanagi-ru. So, because he's not the inheritor, so he created his own system. Um, I've heard the term Neo-Kodu. So it's a Kodu. It's an old system, yeah. but it's not built before 1868. Uh, right. So it's a Neo-Kodu. So that also frees him up to change uh, whatever pieces he needs to as well. He doesn't have to yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't have to use all the old terms. And and this and this incidentally is why uh, see, we sometimes have sort of language disagreements with scholars of martial arts. Where um, I've, for example, I've come across some Koryu practitioners who refer to the arts that they are practicing as historical swordsmanship <laughs> because it's swordsmanship as it was done in, for example, the 17th century. In right. Japan. And I'm like, okay, how do you know that? Well, we've had a direct line of 
of teacher to student that we have a lineage going all the way back to that period and so what we are teaching comes from that period and is therefore the same mm-hmm. right and I'm like yes but every teacher modifies what they teach they can't help it yeah so how, how do you deal with the traditional aspect of yeah, it yeah, right yeah so so now to my mind every and there are massive advantages to training in a lineage art right because you don't have to figure it all out from old books in foreign languages. You just do what your teacher tells you and that's it, right? It's so much easier to get proficient quickly, right? But if you want to know how people actually fought in a particular period, having a document from that period describing how people fight is, I think, more likely to be a, an accurate depiction than something that's been filtered through five or six or ten generations of teacher-student relationships. Um, And so when I say historical martial art, I mean a martial art that is based on research from a historical source. And when some other people say historical martial art, they mean uh, a martial art that has a lineage dating back into a historical period. Right. And in in Japanese, they do have have some documentation of it, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's usually just a list of techniques. So he's like, this is the stuff that they know. You know, here's his license. This is the stuff he knows. Yeah. He knows the, I don't know, the bead curtain technique. Right. (laughs) Very poetic and doesn't mean anything. The the swallow's tail technique. And yeah, I've seen some of those lists. And yeah, if you know it, it's a really (laughs) handy aid memoir for, oh yeah, there's all this stuff. But if you don't know what it means, there is no way to find out from the context. Right. (laughs) yeah uh dear so just as a you know as a side note too when you talk about it's like well you know our our japanese martial art comes from the 1700s it's like well yeah but there was no fighting after 1600 so (laughs) you know at that point before six before 1600 swordsmanship really wasn't that important after 1600 it became a dueling art okay what happened to 1600 was that sekigahara yeah, that was uh, that was the Battle of Sekigahara. That was when the Tokugawa took over and basically uh, created a military dictatorship for the next several hundred years. Okay. So they ruled all of Japan. So there was no battles to be fought, really. Well, interesting. Okay. So swordsmanship was not that important before that. It was around, but it was part of an overall military systems. Well, like like in Fiora's day, like swordsmanship was, I guess, useful. But there were plenty of knights who were super famous. Not for swordsmanship. Right. Super famous for maybe their prowess with a poleaxe or their prowess on horseback. Right. Um, and yeah, swords were part of it, but it wasn't, swordsmanship wasn't a separate discipline. Well, often wasn't a separate discipline. Like, like in Fiora's art, for instance, the swordsmanship is not really separable from the rest of the art. Right. Um, although, I mean, of course, you, you'll have specialists. And for, by later on in the 15th century, swordsmanship became more important. But yeah, it's... If you're looking at a military art, the sword is a backup weapon. Right. Maybe a third step weapon, you know. <laughs> like in, Jap- in Japan, the, uh, the samurai started off as horseback archers. Right. So that's, if you go with that as their idea, you know, that's what a samurai is, is a horseback archer. Um, suddenly a lot of their armor makes sense. Suddenly the flexibility, you know, that they need makes a lot more sense. Suddenly the lighter armor. Uh, and then their, their, their secondary weapon were spears. And then maybe their third weapon was a sword. So, yeah. makes sense. I, I, 
I haven't had it seen it specifically written out, but I have a feeling that the reasoning that swords became, you know, the weapon in Japan uh, is after 1700, that was the one they were carrying around every day. So that was the weapon they had on them. No, but also in Shinto, there are three sacred objects. There's the yes. jewel, the mirror, and the sword. And I think right. that's been the case for a really long time. Sure. And in the in the legend of the kind of creation of Japan, I forget the name of the deity that supposedly did it, it was drops falling from the tip of her sword. Right. Right, so it was a sword. It was explicitly a sword that created Japan in Japan's own mythology, I think. So I, there's a, again, my interpretation of this, mm-hmm. um, original Japanese swords came from Korea and uh, China. <laughs> the Japanese will not thank you for saying that. But I think uh, no, they, no, they literally, they brought you over the swords or... Yeah. They took the swordsmiths and brought them over and had them made the Japanese and Korean swords in Japan. And we're talking 900, 800 AD, so a long, long time ago. At some point, they figured out, I shouldn't say they figured out, they designed their own swords the way they wanted them to. So it became part of their cultural aspect to change them like that. Uh, Japan is not blessed with really good iron. True. So I think part of the you know extreme value of a sword is how much effort it takes to make one. Right. So that's why they're they're viewed just as well as an art object as they are a, a military object. It's because there's so much effort that goes into the building of one. It, it makes you almost go, oh god, I can never chip the edge of this because it'll take me another year and a half to make another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know the, the famous process of like, layering the steel and you know bashing it and cutting it and heating it up and bashing it and folding mm-hmm. it and getting these many thousands of layers. And one smith explained to me that, yeah, but you only need to do that when the steel isn't very good to start with. Right. <laughs> like, and, and it, but isn't it, isn't it miraculous? You know, there's the, the expression, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. But that's exactly what they learned to do. <laughs> they took pretty rubbish raw materials and made... They made a, which a pretty are, silky purse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, a sword that is as good as the best we have to offer in Europe in terms of like cutting ability and what have you. Yeah. Um, I think, to be strictly fair, the Woods steel swords from India are probably superior. It, yeah, in terms of... In terms of metallurgy and... Yes. Yeah. The Japanese blade, uh, I, I like... Obviously, it's a curved blade, so that adds a little bit more aspect to it. But it also, compared to most European blades, they're relatively thick. Yeah. So, again, they're heavy cavalry sabers. So, think of them like that. (laughs) Yeah. Really heavy. I've I've actually done, um, I've done Tomashigiri cutting with a 17th century Japanese sword. That. It it cuts really well. (laughs) Um, Particularly, it cuts really well for a 400-year-old sword. Um, but it's, yeah, it's not better in any I, meaningful way. It viewed up purely as a kind of mechanical object, but, but holding it is really special because it's like, oh my God, that is this beautiful sword that's been looked after really well for a really long time. And it's, I'm actually allowed to cut with it. Oh my God, thank you so much. And it was great. <laughs> it was great. Uh, but you know, a 1796 pattern light cavalry saber will do the same job. I have a feeling, because I haven't, you know, the 1796, I haven't used those in particular. I've used a little bit of uh, German longsword. Okay. But I have a feeling that katanas are more forgiving in their cuts. Yeah. You can 
have the edge not quite as aligned or something like that, and it'll still do a very nice cut. So they are, I think, more forgiving in that aspect. Yeah, and they have the micro serrations along the edge from where all those layers go. Right. So you you have a really good slicing action, and there's a lot of mass behind the blade. So and and of course you know they have that that beautiful grind down yeah. to the edge. They are they're beautiful swords, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as you said, yeah, they just have the best PR. Okay, <laughs> now okay, we we we've been, we've been blathering on about katanas and stuff for a while, um, and I do have to ask you, um, okay. You have your podcast, Martial Thoughts. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your show? Well, it's kind of morphed over time. Um, Originally, it was uh, us sitting around the dojo and I, you know, having discussions and talking and having fun. And I'm like, this is worthy of being on a show somewhere. So I just started recording it, basically. Okay. Um, Then I moved up to Nashville. I moved away from all my friends that we were recording with. And it it became more of an interview show. So it... Mm -hmm. It, it it became an excuse for me to internet stalk people and actually get them to talk to me. Yes, I do the same thing. It's like there are so many people who I have contacted because I wanted, I just wanted to talk to them because I've right. like, maybe I've read a book they've written. Like um, Ruth Goodman is a perfect example. She's written fantastic books about kind of living history, in particular mm-hmm. Tudor history, and you know she's 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 lived the life and, and cooked using authentic ovens and technology and wood fire just absolutely fan world-class living history right and if i just contacted her and said ruth i really like your book would you like to like can i ring you up one day and just chat for an hour about the stuff you do she'd be like who are you you fucking weirdo go away right but when i contacted her through her agent saying i've got this podcast would you like to come on my show right right Another one, like Katie Bowman. I absolutely love Katie Bowman. And she's a, she's a biomechanist. She's, her work is absolutely stunning. And so I thought, oh, I'd love to talk to Katie Bowman. I've got a podcast. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. I can, just, I can just email Katie Bowman's assistant or agent or somebody and say, would you like to come on my show? And she did. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. Are you kidding me? How come Katie Bowman wants to talk to me? It's like. And it's fantastic. So yeah, you, it's this fantastic kind of excuse for for talking to people you want to talk to. It's great. <laughs> yeah, as far as I can tell, the podcast is really for me, and other people just get to listen. You know. <laughs> and, yeah, and I've I've always viewed my show, this show that people are listening to, as um, ideally, if it goes really well, it's like we've been training together during the day. And we're out in the pub afterwards and I'm chatting to the instructor who's taught the seminar or somebody like that. And the listeners are the students sat at the same table having a drink with us, just listening to us chat because hopefully it's interesting enough, more interesting than what they would talk to each other about. And, you know, if, if, you've, if you've ever taught like guest seminars, mm-hmm. it does, there does tend to, you do tend to end up with like talking a lot in the pub afterwards and having a bit of an audience for it because someone will ask you a question about, oh, no, guy, this book you wrote, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, how did this thing come about? And so you just start telling the story of it and then follow-up questions and, and, and basically you're getting interviewed. Right. And so chuck a mic on the table, mind the beer stains, <laughs> and, 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 and it seems to work. You know, people, people like listening in and feeling like they're part of the conversation. Yeah, it's it, podcasting is a weird world in that I know there's lots of people that listen, but I, I have very little direct interaction with them. 
Okay. So <laughs> I've actually uh, I actually met someone who's like, you're the whole reason I came here. I'm like, oh, crap, what did I do? <laughs> it turns out he was a listener to the show. Right. And, yeah, I, I'm, I try to be pretty good at sort of interacting with the listeners. So, you know, um, some of my listeners choose to support the show on Patreon. Mm-hmm. I have a mm-hmm. Patreon account for the show. Um, that's patreon.com forward slash the sword card, <laughs> right? you got to throw that in, right? That's, that's yeah. kind of internet standards. Like. And, and so the people who are like super interested in the show tend to support it. And, you know, when I have a guest coming on, uh, I'll let them know who's, who I'm going to be interviewing and they'll send in questions and I will, you know, ask them if there's anybody they would like me to approach. And, you know, if they ask me to approach someone, I'll do it. Yeah, you know, I'll have a look and you know, make sure they're even vaguely appropriate for the show. But if they are, then I'll at least ask. And some sometimes people do turn you down. Yeah, right. Like, no, nah, don't want to do a podcast. Thank you very much. No, not my thing. That's fine. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I sort of, <laughs> I sort of jumped in there. We were talking about your show, not mine. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you've interviewed quite a few people. Um, for yeah. your Master Thoughts podcast. I, I'm curious, have has anything your guests have said changed how you train? You know, you sent me that one. I think that was the most difficult question you sent me on that one. Um, okay. I don't think I physically have done any training differently. Okay. But it, it's the Martial Thoughts podcast. It, it's kind of like, well, you know, it, it's a podcast. It, it's, it's completely an audio media. So... I'm not going to help you with training techniques, but I'll get you to think differently. Okay. And I and I think that's a lot of what I've done is thought about martial arts differently. And what? Um, well, <laughs> our, our very first episode was uh, my friends and I sitting around trying to define what a martial arts was. Okay. And we failed miserably. <laughs> yeah. Easily done. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's one of those ideas that's just been percolating in the back of my head now for almost seven years since I started. And uh, I, I interviewed someone, and he said, uh, well, we don't need to define what martial arts is. It, it's uh, <laughs> He used the example of um, historical Europe's uh, Celts. He says, a Celt was anybody who called themselves Celtic because Celts were in Ireland, they were in uh, Germany, they were in Spain, they were everywhere. Yeah. So he said, a martial artist is someone who does what they think is a martial art. Okay, yeah, that's, that's not unreasonable. Right, so it, the problem is always if I try to make too strict of a definition, there's a lot of things that colloquially will be considered a martial art but wouldn't by the definition. If I make the definition too broad, then something like American football could almost, could almost be a martial art. You know, it has a lot of the characteristics, but obviously it's not that same thing. It also has a lot of characteristics of a religion. Sure. Yeah. I mean, There's people a... show up to specially built buildings to <laughs> put on funny clothes time and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I think yeah. that I think that's actually one of the benefits or one of the draws for martial arts in general is I'm going to use the word sacred not as in a religious aspect but as a, a separate from mundane. Yeah. You know, so mundane is the, di- the 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 normal world. Sacred is someplace different. A sale, a dojo is a sacred place. It is a different place than the rest of the world. Yeah. We, we, we strip our normal vestments, we put on our funny clothes, and then we grab weapons and try to hit our friends in the head. So. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds sacred to me. Now, I actually have a thought for you. Um, okay. 
related to the martial, the what is the martial art thing. Now, if you think of it, fighting is natural. People fight each other all the time. And so a martial art is those natural human actions ordered into a system so they can be studied, refined and taught. Okay? And that's pretty much the definition of how the word art or arte would be used in, for example, Fiori's time in the 14th century. Mm-hmm. Right? The art of something right. is, is not the, just the doing of it. It is how things are done naturally, organized into a system and defined and what have you. So for the purposes of art, we define a descending blow differently from a rising blow because it's useful to make those distinctions. And in certain arts, the precise angles of those blows are carefully defined for various specific purposes, right? Fiori, for example, says that the descending blow goes from the, the jaw to the knee. Okay. Right? So across the body, so left jaw, mm-hmm. right knee or the other way, right? And that cutting angle happens to be very, very natural and gives you the perfect transition from the guard positions that he shows, okay? But, you know, when you're slamming your sword into somebody's head the precise cutting angle is much less important than that you hit them in time and do enough damage so that they can't hit you back. Right? right. Um, but if you let the definitions go completely, you end up with nothing. You end up with just chaos. Okay? So what, what you have is you have chaos and you impose order on the chaos. So the order is imposed from outside. Right? Mm-hmm. So basically, it's a rationalization of what's going on, which you then tinker with to improve, and you then pass that on, and then you can go into the chaos and produce order. Right. So in other words, you can you can you can make it so that that you can predict what's going to happen because you're going to win because you're better trained than the other person. Yeah. So this sort of rationalization happens after the fact. Right, so to my mind, the, the martial art is that. It is the rationalization of a fighting, you know, fighting that occurs naturally. Yeah, I can see that. And that... It's just a thought. Yeah. The... A martial thought, in fact. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> see, hence the name. There we go. <laughs> um, the way I'm kind of working at it is... In a similar idea, in that a art is again, it's a fuzzy definition, and I'm okay with gray areas on definitions, which is funny because I teach science and we have to have strict definitions. But uh, I guess that's why it's not martial science; it's a martial art because it can have gray areas. Um, I'm defining a, an art as being a skill taken to a higher level, and it's that higher level part that's the fuzzy definition. Okay. Um, it if I put the aspect, the martial aspect, of saying something of combat, that's also where there's a fuzzy definition because something like a judo match isn't combat because there's so many rules implied. But well, if most I people would agree judo is a martial art. But most people agree judo is a martial art. You know. I don't. I think it's a. I think it's a combat sport. But yeah. See again, that's where it's <laughs> start getting into different definitions, right? Yeah. <laughs> So that's what I said. I, I, I come to the conclusion is, for lack of a better term, there, there's it's, it's like pornography. You know it when you see it. You know. <laughs> but also, like, but 
the definitions themselves are part of that rationalization process of the and afterthought they are, and yeah. they are not therefore the truth right right they are a convenient kind of drawing we put around a fuzzy shaped thing to give it enough definition that we, that we can then manipulate it and play with it it's a convenient term for you and I to talk about something, say martial art, and we have a pretty good idea what we're talking about. Yeah. Big old, we are getting into semantics. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. All right. So do you guys use much in the way of protective equipment when you're training? Um, be, what we, have, uh, we use, I don't think I ever really answered the one question you asked about, you know, what are the equipment that we use? Well, we use uh, Boken, which are uh, wooden swords. Mm-hmm. Um at some point, <laughs> we'll actually start with uh, live blades, you know, going really slowly at first and then slowly building up speed sharp. with it. But you mean sharp steel? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, there's a, a, a gentleman uh, who I just inter- uh, interviewed. He was on a couple episodes ago. Who is developing uh, kind of like a, a fetter styles for katana shapes. Oh, my God. Uh, and he's been, he's been playing. I'm not with, sure I approve. <laughs> <laughs> he's been playing with his local uh, uh, HEMA group in, I think it's Tulsa, Oklahoma, if I remember right. Um, and he has a really interesting aspect of what he's doing with it is that he's not trying to play HEMA with a katana. What he's trying to do is say, what's happening, and how does my system answer the question that they're they're supplying me with. So he's still staying within the Japanese martial art that he's doing, but he's allowing the much more sparring aspect of it. And at some point, I'm going to get one of those, and I'm going to start playing around with it and, and, and seeing how, how that works. How does my system answer the demands of uh, more speed and timing? Yeah, and you know, I, I've done a lot of work sharp on sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I test all of my interpretations with sharps just as a matter of course. And... It is, it's it's a really useful window, <laughs> um, but it's still just one other window. Because, right. Because the blades are sharp. Um, are you familiar with my my bullshit theory of martial arts? Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So so yeah, every every drill, every training method has a dollop of bullshit in it, which is why it's not actually a real fight. Right. So so you know, if we're going full speed, we're really trying to hit each other. We're probably using. Um, weapons that have been made somewhat safer and we're using some kind of protection, protective equipment. Mm-hmm. So the, the bullshit is in the equipment. Mm-hmm. If we if we have the real equipment, then we have to do something else to stop ourselves from killing each other. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really useful kind of, sort of concentration for the mind. Yeah, and I, and I think if you do... <laughs> You know, you said it's a window in, right? If you look at enough windows, you probably get a pretty good idea of what's inside the house. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, have, I have come across people who are going to start doing the sharp stuff and they don't realize it's just another window. Mm. Uh, it's, not, it's not the real thing. Right. It, it's still, it's still mm. just another window because you're not actually trying to kill anyone and no one is trying to kill you. If they are, you're in the wrong school. You need to get the hell out quick. Correct, yes. <laughs> um, it's hard to learn if you're dead. Yeah, yeah. But I'll, I'll, be, I'll be really interested to see how, how that comes along. And I would... I know that... I know some of my colleagues who focus on Koryu-style uh, Japanese martial arts, they, use, they do sparring with, for example, padded swords. 
Mm-hmm. And apparently there was a great big controversy in the 17th century in Japan over the use of these padded swords or not, and should you use them or shouldn't you? And this particular style, I, I met these guys in Finland, and I actually saw them training. And yeah, they were beating hell out of each other with these padded swords. <laughs> um, but they weren't wearing any masks. So they, right. they modified the weapon, but they hadn't, you know, j- um, fencing masks of some kind weren't part of it. And then you've got kendo, which is mm-hmm. kind of like the sport fencing version, but it's not really sport fencing, but it's it's... It has yeah. massively modified equipment. So Shinai with the split bamboo swords and like very, very effective masks, helmets. But it, it's also yeah. Kendo in itself has become its own separate branch and right. it's like, it's its own separate thing. It's like like sport fencing. Sport fencing developed from classical fencing, which developed from small sword. But, right. But they are it, you know, it became its own separate thing already in the 19th century. Right. Yeah, when when people stopped carrying swords, but they carried on fencing, the fencing basically became something else. Right. And uh, that's very similar to the way Kendo did, too. Sure. A very, very realistic, very, very stylistic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I have some Kendo practitioner friends, and from the way they describe it, it's not fair to call it a sport in the way that we think of when we say sport, because that's not what they're doing. It's just what it looks like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Uh, again, it, do- it doesn't fit neatly into the categories that we have in English for describing activities. Right. Um, okay. Now, I do have a couple of questions that I, I ask most of my guests. Uh, the first is, what is the best idea you have never acted on? <laughs> I love this question, by the way. I, this is one of my favorite questions to hear how people answer it. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, so I'm going to go, maybe not the best, but I'm going to go with, I think, one of the coolest ideas. And it's one that I've never acted on, so I'm putting it out to the internet. And whoever wants to try this, I will be the first person to buy the product, okay? Okay. Go on then. Um, I, I'm a high school teacher, so I dress probably a little bit nicer than normal, and I wear ties occasionally. Mm-hmm. So I, I like pattern ties. Okay. So my idea that I thought would be awesome would be to have Damascus pattern ties. So ties <laughs> that look like Damascus steel? Yes. Okay. <laughs> would, would, would these be made actually from Damascus steel? No, they would just have the, the different weld patterns on them. It would be a really subtle thing so that I know I'm wearing it, and if someone recognizes it and they show that they know they're wearing it, then I know they're also a sword guy too. Now that is a fascinating <laughs> idea. And actually, that is surprisingly doable. Yes. I actually, I, I got to the point where I was actually looking like, how do you put patterns on ties? How do you actually go about making them? Uh, and, and I, you know, it's, have, it's a lot involved. A, okay. I have a friend here in Ipswich who runs a, a clothes shop where he gets, <laughs> he, he gets his, his stuff made in Italy and then sells it through his shop. Right. So he actually, you know, he talks to factories in Italy producing high end clothes, jackets and ties and shirts and stuff. Um, I, I I might have a word with him and see what he says. <laughs> if you can get it done, I will be the first person in line to buy one. There'll be like five of us buying it, but I'll be the first person. That's that's a really good idea. And okay, so because it's generally sword shaped anyway, so yeah, kind of. Um, okay, uh, 
we should probably have like if we have one with like a Viking style pattern welding. Sure. With that quite bold pattern. Yeah. Right. But we should probably also for the Japanese aficionados <laughs> have one with the um, the Harmon line. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should definitely have a Woods one as well. Right. I mean, it, it, you could actually have a whole bunch of different series of them, and it would. Yeah. I think I think that's so. So basically, so the tie looks like it's made out of that kind of steel. Right. I think that'd be the manliest tie in history. And and <laughs> and and also, well, I mean, you say manliest tie, but you know there are plenty of women who do swords. And, sure. And they so just generally don't wear the ties. They just as much. Gener- generally <laughs> don't wear the ties. So we would also need to have some kind of equivalent people who dress in a traditionally female manner so some kind of um i mean you uh, could put you could put a whole pattern on any type of clothing i suppose you could you could once you've got the pattern and you've, you're printing it on silk right okay these ties okay, <laughs> yeah. i i only have a few ties and I, I only wear ties very occasionally right but they they have to be silk or wool and there's none of this rayon shit. <laughs> I agree. Right. So, so we're talking basically a high-end silk tie. That reminds me, Hermes, when the whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing went nuts, um, some however long ago it was. Right. Um, actually, they they in this shop they they organised their ties. They had seven grey ties and they had seven shades of grey. <laughs> <laughs> Which is genius, right? It's yeah. Way to sell great time. So, so I, I'm not suggesting we should we should necessarily pick up the Fifty Shades theme because that was a crap book and a worse film. But um, the but I, like you said, you only wear a couple of ties, and if you're a swords mm. person, might as well have a sword tie. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, you can't you can already get sword ties, right? Right. Um, Historical clothiers in um, there in Chicago. Okay. Um, they have sort of fiore patterns that you can put on ties and stuff. I'm not sure whether it's whether they're silk. I don't think they're silk. I think they are modern fabric. Mm. So I wouldn't wear them because fabric. I mean, if you're going to put on a tie, it's, it's got to be it's got to be silk or wool. I mean, you, cotton if it's hand woven, maybe, <laughs> but not really. No, sorry, got to be silk or wool, and ideally, generally silk. Um. <laughs> So like I said, it's an interesting idea. I don't know if it it's is. the best idea, but yeah, it's cool. Yeah. And, and you certainly haven't acted on it. So, <laughs> so again, if but, someone's out there. Oh yeah, so if, any, if anyone who happens to work in the uh, I don't know, high-end clothing industry wants to take this idea and run with it, we're not asking for royalties, are we? <laughs> I'll take a sample. Right, yeah, <laughs> me too. And, and if you want to consult with either of us on like patterns and where to find them, I mean, I have a pattern welded sword on the wall hanging behind me right now. I'll be happy to take some really good photographs for people to put on a tie. As long as I get a copy of the tie, it's fine. All right. Brilliant. Okay. That, that is our, not our financial future assured, but our, 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 our place in the history of fashion. There we go. <laughs> no, I never thought I'd have a place in the history of fashion, but it looks like we do now. Brilliant. Okay. So my last question is somebody gives you a million pounds, dollars or something similar to in, spend improving martial arts or martial arts education worldwide. How would you spend the money? So 
my initial idea was to have a Shaolin Tempo-esque thing to where whoever wanted to study martial arts, you know, could of whatever brand would have a place to come and study them, look them up, have an amazing library there. But the more I thought about that, the more that would limit the people that would be able to travel there. Right. It'd be much better to almost have it as a traveling circus, flying around the world, going on tour type of thing. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how that would work, but if I'm given, you know, infinite amount of money, I, I suppose... I could make it work. You know, they do rock concerts. It wouldn't be that different, I suppose. Okay, but what what value is a martial arts student going to get from a martial arts school that appears for a week and then goes away again to reappear 20 years later? Uh, so that's the thing is it would have to stay there for a while. It would almost have to have like, um, almost like a, a, I don't know, like a county fair type of thing where it sets up shop, is there for a little while. Once the the clouds die down, then they go, oh, now it's time to move on. So it wouldn't have a schedule. It would just move around wherever it wanted to. And I think the value, I think the value honestly would be um, exposure of martial arts. Not not to the layperson per se, though that would be good too. But it would be more about, I have, I have no idea what um, Indian martial arts would feel like. Like the okay. subcontinent of India. I know they yeah. exist. I've seen them on you know, YouTube. I've seen them on a couple of shows. But I want to experience them. I want to experience all the different martial arts of everywhere. Okay. At least to let me know what they feel like as a sensory yeah. experience. Yeah. Because um, most of our martial arts... Well, getting punched by a boxer feels very different to being punched by a kung fu person. I've exactly. experienced both and they're very different. Yeah, well, they hurt an awful lot and you fall down, <laughs> but you fall down differently too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, you know, you know, just to, I, I, you know, this kind of combining the two questions, right? I, I They had for a while, they had uh, a couple of different comedian TV shows that were traveling around the world and, you know, they were going to India and doing the Indian martial arts and they were going to China and doing the Chinese martial yeah. arts. My my friend Armin Alizad did one in Finland. Uh, it was called Kill Armin, and it was great. He went to various places, and he would train for a while, and then he would fight either the senior student or the teacher, depending, and he would get the shit absolutely kicked out of him. And well, he, he was tough and brave and, you know, really, really put the effort in. And, yeah, and Kill Armin was a great name for the show, <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that was in Finnish, so I don't think it, it made it into the wider martial arts world, but so totally, if, totally one worth looking at. But that's, so that's, that's if, the sort of show you're talking about, right? Yeah, but I, I, I do take one aspect differently. Again, small market, but if we did it just for swords around the world, there's lots of different, again, getting that definition, things we call swords. Mm-hmm. And they're all technically you know, made differently, shaped differently, and used differently. I would love to explore how each of these uh, cultural and technical differences affected the use of them and see how they were used and why they were used this way. Okay, I have a thought for your idea, just to kind of maybe tweak it a little bit. Sure. Okay. If you had a central location somewhere Mm -hmm. where, where you had sort of training in all these various arts and you had this traveling thing that went around the world and a massive budget, 
it could offer scholarships to people who came and sort of tested out like oh I've really wanted to train this thing and they train there for a week or whatever they go yeah okay you're the sort of person we want we will send you to our head school in wherever it is for yeah. a year or whatever and then you come back and open a school in your town and and thus the art spreads yes I like that that, that would be good wouldn't it yes so it would be like like partly it's display just to show people this stuff exists and partly it's looking for talent or looking for talent. enthusiasm a horrible word but yeah <laughs> looking, looking for looking for the right people to train <laughs> the, up in these arts who the willingness to put up with it yes <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Ah, that's a great idea. Well, if, if I had infinite funds, I would <laughs> I'd, I'd cut you a very large check. <laughs> At this rate, I think you're going infinitely bankrupt, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. I I can't think of a guest whose idea didn't want me to open up my imaginary box of gold and, and start you know, digging it out with a shovel. Because, um, yes, there are, there, are so many, there are so many things that we could be doing to... You know, make the world of martial arts a better place. That's a really interesting idea. I like the sort of the traveling circus idea of it too. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Well, Jared, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a delight talking to you again. Yes. And um, we shall do this again sometime. Please. Anytime you have anything you want to talk about, I'm willing and able. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jared. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I should also mention that the new and entirely rebuilt swordschool.com website is now live and it is marvellous and splendid and it's taken months and months and months. But basically... It's a place where you can go and you can find the stuff you need to find regarding getting better at sword fighting. So, swordschool.com. I'll be interested to hear what you think of the website, and particularly if you find any sort of test flight bugs in it. It should be absolutely fine. We've tested it to the nth degree, but nothing prepares a website or nothing exposes flaws like the intended users actually using a thing. So, go have a look and let me know. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Pamela Muir, Pamela is the founder of the Academy of Chivalric Martial Arts in Arlington, Virginia, and she's also a mathematician in a very obscure branch of maths. So we get into the weeds a little bit there because whenever I find somebody who has a technical speciality I have absolutely no clue about, I tend to get very interested and ask lots of questions. So I hope you'll enjoy it. You don't want to miss it. And you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. While you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. (laughs) 